All right. In the uh, television show, It's Christmas Time Again, Charlie Brown, uh, that premiered in 1992. This is a, another Christmas classic after the more famous Charlie Brown Christmas of 1965, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, there's yet another Christmas play that's put on by the Peanuts. In this one, Peppermint Patty, uh, the tomboyish, sandal-wearing, incredibly confident adolescent friend of Charlie Brown, is cast as the sheep in the town's Christmas play. She says, I can't believe I have to play a sheep in the Christmas play again. Every year, it's the same thing. Her good friend Marcy is cast as Mary, the mother of Jesus, and says, I was up late last night memorizing all of my lines. Peppermint Patty says to Marcy, All your lines? I, I can't remember my lines, Marcy. Marcy reminds her, You're a sheep, sir. All you have to say is, Bah. To which Peppermint Patty says, Who would want to be in a Christmas play if every year they have to be a sheep? So in the Christmas story, and in countless children's plays around the country, memorializing Luke 2, nativity play sets, television shows, we get the idea there's a lot of shepherds and there's a lot of sheep. And they seem to take on this very important place in much of our uh, storytelling of the Christmas story and as it's reenacted for us. However, in uh, Judean peasant society of the first century, they weren't particularly special. Okay? The sheep and the shepherds were everywhere. They were part of everyday life. And so it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that when that babe in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, grew up to be an adult man in his early 30s, that he would use an extended metaphor about shepherd and sheep. And he used this to articulate the description of his coming to earth and what he accomplished through that. So as Matt opened the service, kind of at the very beginning, taking us to John chapter 10, we're going to read from those words together and hear how Jesus describes his coming and dying on the cross. As we look at this description, we're continuing on in our, our series that we've been going through this Advent season to understand the doctrines of grace in this time of Christmas. And so let's hear these words from John chapter 10. I'm going to read again for us. If you have your Bible, your Bible app, and you can open up to John chapter 10, I'm going to start reading at verse 16. Uh, excuse me, verse 11, actually. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves his sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, our time to meet together. God, we pray that you would use this text in our lives to cement truth in our minds and hearts today, God, that none of us would walk away without a firm understanding of what you were accomplishing and intending to accomplish in your death on the cross. And God, I pray for those here, God, in, in my voice that are listening, God, that you would give us attention to have the right response as we hear of this truth in your name. Amen. 
So from this text, we, we get to one take-home truth. One thing we're trying to get out of this. That Jesus completed a perfect atonement. Jesus completed a perfect atonement. And there's two basic aspects that we're going to go at this today. The first is that it was perfect because of its particularity, and it was perfect because of its certainty. Particularity and certainty. I'm probably going to say those 11 or 12 times. I'll probably trip over them a couple times, so make sure you have them right now while I'm still getting it out cleanly. Particularity and certainty. So we're going to start by looking at its particularity, and those are coming right out of the passage that we just read in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 16. It was a perfect atonement that Jesus accomplished because of its particularity. Now, I say atonement, I'm using that in a real quick reference to describe Jesus' death on the cross and as a payment for our sins, humanity's sins in that death. So that's what I mean by atonement, and I'm going to use it throughout. Jesus declares himself to be a good shepherd in this passage, and the fundamental attribute of his declaration is that he is fully vested for his sheep. He contrasts himself with this hired hand, okay? A hired hand and Jesus have different levels of investment uh, in this story about the sheep, right? And that's not uncommon for us to understand. There's a, quite a difference between what an equity business owner has at stake in a business versus a consultant. It's quite a bit different as a homeowner, your view of your four walls and your roof and your plumbing and your electricity compared to a tenant, right? How about as parents, the stake that you have in your children, their education, their obedience, their behavior, versus fun uncle and the babysitter, right? Totally different levels of investment. And Jesus, as a good shepherd, is vested in his sheep. But more than just this vested interest, for our purposes today, notice who he is invested in particularly. In verse 11 from our passage in John 10, it says, he lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand of verse 12 doesn't own the sheep, so he flees at the first wolf sighting. You know what I mean? There's other sheep jobs in town. This one isn't working out. I'll just get the next one. It's okay. There's no reason to put myself at risk. Jesus, on the other hand, lays himself out for these sheep. Verse 14, he's invested as a good shepherd because he knows his own and they know him. These aren't some random sheep wandering the Judean wilderness and Jesus as a caped sheep crusader suddenly comes out to do random good for them. These are his sheep. That's why he puts out the effort. It's personal. It's intentional. It's particular. So why does this matter? Why does it matter that this is a particular work that Jesus is doing as he describes himself as a, as a shepherd? Well, first of all, it's because proof that he's vested in this, okay? The fact that it's these specific people He's investing himself toward them, shows his investment or being vested in the situation. So our sermon series is called Christmas and the Doctrines of Grace, and we've, been, we've heard all about our condition in humanity. We are really, really bad. So bad that the Father, God the Father, had to move toward us first in his unconditional electing love as we were unable and unwilling to even take any step in his direction in our desperate condition. As we described in the first sermon of this series, there's a memorable acrostic that we use to keep track of these doctrines of grace, and it's the word tulip. We saw that condition is remembered by the letter T for total depravity. Then we saw last week about God's electing love toward us in the U, unconditional election. And when I talk about particularity, 
I'm trying to give a helpful way for us to think about that third letter, the L, that stands for limited atonement. The idea that the atonement is limited, and what I just said, may sound a little heretical at first brush, if I'm honest with you, right? So we think God is never limited. He's all-powerful. He's greater than all. So the idea that the death of Jesus is not infinite, or dare I say limitless, seems to be misunderstanding or misrepresenting who God is. And I can say to that sentiment, if that's how you hear that and you immediately think that, amen, I couldn't agree more. That sentiment is exactly what we want to say. And those who know and love the doctrines of grace totally want to think of God as larger than anything can be imagined, greater, and put him on the top shelf. This is a God with all power who can do all things. Don't deny that. But if we stop for a moment to understand a little bit of what is meant by the idea of a limited atonement, we'll see that this really isn't the case. It isn't causing a problem of God's superiority or greatness at all. If anything, it's further affirming that. So I feel like trying to emphasize this as particularity is a little bit of an easier way and more helpful way to represent what is meant by that uh, third letter in the acrostic. So as we saw in this extended metaphor in John 10, Jesus isn't claiming or representing to lay down his life for indiscriminately for anybody and everyone. No, he's very specific in his words. If you look back at the text in verses 14 and 15, Jesus knows his sheep, they know him. Just like his father knows him, he knows the Father, and Jesus lays down his life for the sheep, the, the previously referenced sheep. The perfection of Jesus' coming and dying that is, for a specific, is, is that it is for a specific group of humanity. Not any gender, not any ethnic group, or any of those possess, possessing of a certain skill or ability. God, God forbid, that's not at all the particularity we're referring to. But all of humanity is depraved and really, really bad. So God in love moves toward people to show his love to them and to save them. And that's the amazing thing, that God chose these people before the foundation of the world, before they did anything right, before they did anything wrong, and he moved toward them in love. And these verses from John tell us this was in particularity, that Jesus actually knows these people, or these sheep in the metaphor. He came and he died for them. In particular, he died for specific people. That's amazing. Somewhat unexpected. So if this is the first time you've heard this and you're kind of tracking with me and you're thinking through it, there's probably a natural question that's coming to mind that I've asked, that countless of people throughout history have asked, that have asked through the ages. And so I'm going to help you phrase that question that you're thinking right now in the grammatically correct format that it's printed in all the books. For whom did Christ die? That's the question that you're next left with. For whom did Christ die? Or we might say it a little bit more in the vernacular. Who are these people that Jesus died for so we can know who they are? Am I one of them? Is my kid one of them? Who are are these people that Jesus died for? How can I know? It would be helpful to know if there was a way to distinguish for whom Christ died. But time and again, the Bible tells us and takes us back to the truth that the people for whom Christ died are the people who believe in him for salvation as their only hope in this life and the life to come. So in essence, what I'm saying is those who believe the gospel of Jesus are the ones for whom Christ died. So if you're looking for the ones that Christ died for, look for those who are believing the gospel, and those are the same individuals that he died for. There's not a yellow line marked on the back of individuals nor any other distinguishing characteristics to tell us who will believe. So just as Jesus preached, we preach to this very day, 
calling all people everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus. And those who believe in that message, in the person of Jesus and his gospel, and come to faith, we then know that person is the one whom Christ died for. And this particularity shows that his investment was in those individuals, those people. But secondly, that particularity also is necessary for perfection. So I've been saying the atonement is perfect. Christ is, is showing his investment in these individuals, but there's a reason why that's essential to be able to prove that it's actually perfect or completed. Perfection speaks to fullness or completeness without, without any miss or shortcoming. And we're pretty familiar with that when we talk about Jesus, right? We think about him being holy, sinless, uh, completely perfect in, in terms of that. But we should also understand that Jesus' coming to earth and dying for sinners was perfect as well. In the Gospel of John, just a few chapters earlier than what we've read here, John six thirty-seven, we read the words, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So God's giving to Jesus, these people that he's giving to him, is perfectly completed. Those given to Jesus, or we might see it as his electing love in that way, given to him, Jesus indeed receives them. They actually come to belief. The ones he's given are the ones that believe. Have you ever gotten up from the couch or your chair at home in a living room, and you get up to go to another room in your house, and you're supposed to pick something up, get something out of there? I don't know about you, but I think if we actually rated your activities, which we don't typically do, but if we rated that activity, we'd probably call you a failure. Okay? Sorry to be so blunt today. But you'd probably be a failure. You get up with a certain idea in mind of what you're going to do, and I can almost guarantee you that you do something different after you've got up to accomplish that one thing. I don't know about you. Usually how this works for me is I'm sitting there at night, probably catching the Bruins or the Celtics, somebody at night, catching it. I'm going to get up and get a glass of water. So I get up with that intention in mind, getting a glass of water. I go into the kitchen, and somehow when I come back to catch the game, I have a glass of milk and a pile of chocolate chip cookies on my plate. Now, I had the greatest of intentions of how that was going to go, but you know, one thing to a led to another, and there it is. Now, we don't usually think of that as a failure, right? We tend to say that was awesome or that was tasty, okay? Those are the words and characteristics that usually come to mind. But that's fine for us. We're, we're okay in those circumstances. But it would be very different uh, to understand that our intention and our outcome are, are kind of misaligned. Like, that's really what's happening right there, right? We have this intention, and our outcome is actually quite different from what we intended to happen. So the same thing can be said for a quick stop at Target, actually, right? The entire business model of this store is you walk in with a singular intention of what you're going to buy, and you walk out with way more than you ever intended to have. They're put in front of you, you see it, it all happens just that way. So these are both situations that probably aren't the biggest deal in the world for you if you came back with cookies, if you spent a little bit extra at Target, you might need to work through that eventually, but more or less, those aren't the end of the world. Now let's look at how this works. There's a lack of particularity in those efforts that we've talked about. As I said, it's not a biggest deal for you and I, but if the all-powerful and all-knowing and completely holy God of the universe has an intention of doing something, and he is either incapable of completing it or unfocused in his intention or execution of it, he fails. That's significant. If God fails, it would undercut the reality of the God revealed to us in the Bible. Or simply said, God wouldn't be God. If he intended to save people, and then unfortunately he couldn't get it done, or he lost interest, and he was distracted, it just couldn't happen, 
Either way, we would either doubt the sincerity of his intention or the adequacy of his power. See those two things at stake? Either we're doubting the, the sincerity of his intention or we'd have to doubt the adequacy of his power. So God is actually the one saving, so his power to do so shouldn't, shouldn't really be called into question. The Bible is replete with words of the Lord being mighty to save as both the righteous judge and the one providing the sacrifice. It would seem unquestioned uh, to anyone who is reading the Bible at face value that, they could find a way to, that God could find a way to get it done. So the adequacy of his power to save we can agree is likely not the issue. He's able to save, we would say, at least some, right? He, he should have the capability of doing that, and he's able to maintain perfection in that way. If you have questions on that, I'm happy to chat with you afterward. We can go through that, talk about God's power, his ability to save. But for the sake of argument here, we're going to just go ahead and assume that's probably not the issue. So then we have to ask, is he sincere in his intention to save? Is there alignment in God's intention and the outcomes? To be able to answer this affirmatively, for perfection, we need to see particularity in the atonement. Or another way to say this is, was God's love in sending Jesus to die on a cross for particular individuals? To help answer this, we should be familiar with a particularity of focus that comes out in love. Uh, one of the best holiday examples I could come up with to uh, refer to this is one of the ubiquitously popular songs by Mariah Carey, called All I Want for Christmas is You. You may be familiar with the words. Kind of I don't want a lot for Christmas. There's just one thing I need. I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. I just want you for my own, more than you could ever know. Make my wish come true. All I want for Christmas is you, baby. Right? Okay, so you're familiar with that, right? So even with my poor rendition of uh, Mariah Carey's song, you hear the words of particularity throughout the song. It's brought up with her intention, and there's alignment with her outcomes. She's describing her focus, apart from all distractions, any other presence, all she wants for Christmas is you. Not only would the song be less popular, but it would actually be nonsensical if the, the idea was expressed as, all I want for Christmas is somebody. Please, somebody, anybody, anybody at all. No one? Okay, like it wouldn't be effective. The whole idea of this now 24-year-old song is has the ability of the listener to personalize the you, right? You hear the song, all I want for Christmas is you. It doesn't necessitate reciprocation in your experience of the song, but either way, you can be focused on someone else and all I want for Christmas is you. Such the popularity of the song. So we understand from that innately, really, that particularity described in this song is indeed an expression of great love to an individual. Now, Lorraine Botner, an American you're probably less familiar with, I'll be honest, than Mariah Carey, uh, was an American lay theologian of the early 20th century who ironically worked for the Library of Congress and the IRS while writing theology apparently at night, says it very well for us that he had a grasp of this truth, and this is his reflection on it. He says, it was not then a general an indiscriminate love of which all men were equally the objects of Christ's death and his love, but a peculiar, mysterious, infinite love for his elect, which caused God to send his Son into the world to suffer and die. It was a peculiar, mysterious, infinite love for his elect, which caused God to send his Son into the world to suffer and die. You hear the amazement and the love that comes in God's particularity? 
an intention is fulfilled to perfection. It's similar to the execution of a perfect game in baseball combined with that laser beam focus of a lover toward their beloved. Bringing those two things together in both intentions, emotion, and execution. Perfect execution ensures that Jesus' death was applied to all who would believe. That perfect laser beam focus of love means that Jesus knew who he was coming to save. He knew who he was dying for. And if you believe, he died for you. He knew your name. He died with you in mind. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, feel his particular love and intention for you. It can send chills up my spine, and I, I might even well up in tears as I think about it from time to time, that God knows who you are if you believe in him. And he came to earth and became a human, this whole Christmas story, with you in mind. Not generally. You know, when someone says, hey, everybody did a great job here. Thank, thank you all for that good work. You're like, all right, that's, that's okay. Jesus came, took on flesh, and died for you. Knowing who you are, knowing what you're like, and died for you anyways. That kind of particularity is incredibly moving. If you haven't yet believed in Jesus... Look to him in faith. His death is sufficient for all, but will truly be efficient for all who believe. And we should turn to him and believe in him. If you haven't yet today, I invite you to continue to consider that. But not only is it his particularity in his dying for us that's important in this perfect atonement, but also it's, there's certainty behind this. The truth of particularity in and of itself would not fully convey the perfection of the Son's atonement for us who believe. So the other important aspect of his atonement is its certainty. It's certainty. So we can pick up the shepherd metaphor of Jesus in John 10. He kind of continues on, and we're going to pick it up in verse 22. So I'm going to read these words for you. John 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ or the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So we're given a specific context here in this, uh, this passage. It's wintertime. It's the Feast of Dedication. So this is what we would more commonly know as Hanukkah. That's what Jesus is celebrating here. He's present at Hanukkah at the, the Jewish temple. And Jesus as a Jew celebrated Hanukkah with his words here in this passage some 1,986 years ago or so to the month. And they're still relevant for us today. So we see further in this passage that the sheep, throughout this extended metaphor, are those who believe in Jesus. Those who don't believe, he refers to in verse 26 as, not my sheep. He describes the sheep as those that hear his voice, they know him, they follow him. And the outcome is accomplished in giving them eternal life, or synonymous with what we refer to as salvation. The intention was to save his sheep those who would believe in Jesus. 
But then he gives us a further description to give us more certainty or confidence around this outcome. So there's five doctrines of grace and there's four Advent Sundays. So that means not only am I talking about the L in TULIP, but I'm also going to touch on the P of TULIP, okay? And that stands for the perseverance of the saints. So this wording too can be confusing and you may envision the idea of perseverance of the saints as somehow requiring marathon runners, Navy SEALs, or others who are known for their tough-minded perseverance. And that, that wouldn't be the point of this terminology. Uh, when it was coined at the Council of Dort, uh, this idea of TULIP, they had another intention in mind. And so I'm using the word certainty to help us try to convey that a little bit more effectively. If you look at verses 28 and 29 of the passage I just read there in John 10, you can see it's not about our tough-mindedness, our ability to run marathons, hold our breath underwater, or whatever it is that Navy SEALs do. And the intention is not those great things. The intention is not the person who's doing all this, but look who the subject is of the action in verses 28 and 29. All of the effort is coming from God. And we quickly see this perseverance is not based on the one who wills or runs, but on the work of God. The giver of eternal life is Jesus. And then these clear and declarative indicatives are included to say they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And he ratchets it up in verse 29. And he says, the Father has given them to me, that unconditional election. This is what is being referenced. The Father is greater than all. So no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So you have this kind of anthropomorphic imagery, right? The Son has us in His hand. And then He says the Father has us in His hand. There is no way that anyone or any circumstance can remove us from God's hold. We are that secure. The outcome is that certain. Doubly sure. The word to describe this perseverance is certainty. Certainty that the intention of God and the outcome to happen are perfectly aligned both because of the particularity that we spoke about earlier and because of the certainty described here. So I don't know if you think about certainty in this way, but if you ever sent out invitations for like a party, having people over, doing all those things, whether formal or informal, um, you put out the word, hey, we're going to have this party. And you get everything ready, you get the house all cleaned up, you get the food ready, you set everything there, and then you get to this moment of waiting, Right? There's that inevitable moment. Now, as your kids go through this, or you might recall back to when you were a kid, it's a totally different experience than when you're an adult. I don't ever actually find myself sitting around waiting as an adult, but as a kid, there's this moment when I did my three chores, and now I'm waiting for the company to come. When are they going to be here? And you find yourself looking out the windows, running back around the house, looking out the window again. 30 seconds later, they're still not here. You maybe open up the door, and you look out. Okay, are they here? Are they here? Nope, nope. You pace, you run, you hop, you do everything, waiting for the company to arrive. Now, I don't know that I actually can recall a time where I've invited people in honesty and they didn't show up, but the chance is always there, right? There could be a misunderstanding about the date, either on my part or on the guest, and, you know, okay, we got misaligned on the dates on that. There could be, uh, um, you know, police could be detaining someone along the way so they can't make it to your very important party. Additionally, there could be an incredible health issue that just pops up out of nowhere suddenly and unexpectedly, and they're unable to make it for your party. And they can't call you even because it's a significant issue. All of these things are possible, right? We'd put them in the realm of possibility. Probably remote, but possible. Any of these things could happen. But in the perfection of Jesus' coming, dying, and saving for us, there is zero uncertainty that it would happen. It was absolutely certain that those for whom he died would believe and will 
be saved. Absolute certainty. So those who trust in Jesus will totally and finally be saved from their sins. No chance of failure, uncertainty, or loss. Botner is again helpful for us with these words. Listen, listen to his words of this as a, as a layman understanding. Since the work of God is never in vain, those who are chosen by the Father, those who are redeemed by the Son, and those who are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, or in other words, election, redemption, and sanctification, must include the same persons. So he goes back again. He's saying those that are chosen by the Father, those that are redeemed by the Son, and sanctified by the Spirit, all the same people. They go through each step as the same individual. Same person goes through each step. Those particular sheep that Jesus has died for, they will be saved totally and finally. As their election was unconditional, the outcome of that election will, pres- will persevere despite sins, setbacks, and trials and will culminate in the saintly sheep being saved. To help clarify this, we can take a little bit of an analogy from the world of business. You think about sales and marketing, that idea, and you think about funnel management or pipeline, right? You start with this kind of broad group of, heck, some businesses are like everybody in the world could fit in that top layer of your business. Okay, let's see what's out there, right? And then you start narrowing down that funnel. Okay, I want to deal with people, of all the people in the world, people who are within maybe my region that I can sell to, people within my region of the world who might have vague interest in the product that I'm trying to sell, maybe who've expressed interest, are a decision maker, maybe has the budget, so you end up with this small pocket of highly likely people to purchase. And you work your way down, and at each level you deal with another subset, another subset, another subset as you funnel down to the target group that you're trying to reach. And you think about that last rung, you've gotten down to a pretty small subset of the overall realm of whoever you had at the top of your funnel. Now, we could think that salvation is that way. And there are some that start to believe, and then it's up to us to come to church and do the right things, make it through all the challenges and mayhem of life, and still somehow hold on to our faith, and there's kind of a defect rate at each funnel. And so only those at the very end who still hold on some miracle, those are the ones that are truly saved. And this would be false. There's no subset here in this setup. Again, the perfection of the Son's atonement is that there is certainty from those at the top of the funnel will reach the end destination. So a better way to think about the process of salvation is not like a marketing funnel, but more like the technology of blockchain. An unbroken link, secure by design, that retains and reaches completion without any loss or corruption. The same way that Bitcoin or every Google Doc, to a certain extent, can have various inputs, edits, ebb and flows, and while the certainty of that beginning object is, is going to make it to the end point of being absolutely secure. That's a better way to think about what happens in salvation. And so Jesus' uh, atonement that he does for us is totally and finally accomplished for us, and that's what the perseverance of the saints teaches us. So I keep pointing back totally, finally. You might have caught that a few times. I want to get to what that in, entails. Totally and finally means that our perseverance in our faith can only be guaranteed on the basis of God's grace and not our own works. I don't, mean, I don't need to be overly worried that I have doubts today in my faith. I don't need to think a Christian could never have sinned in this way. No sin is too great for God to forgive. There is no sin you can commit for which Jesus did not pay the price for his sheep. We are saved totally from all and every sin if we put our faith 
in trust in Jesus alone. And totally and finally, secondly, allows for sin, failings, foibles in the believer's life with repentance and faith so we can hold on to the promise of perseverance. There can be seasons or moments of great sin or despair, and the feeling of faith just might not even be there in actuality. The truth of this doctrine tells us that our hope for now, just as in the beginning of our faith, comes back to our faith in God and his grace toward us. Thus, the antidote to sin, the recovery from spiritual depression, and the means of grace is bringing us through a lifetime of doubt, misery, and pain, and all the trials of life, is to again come back to the gospel of Jesus and what Jesus has said and what he has done. It is a certain accomplishment he will give us for our faith. Jesus promises that those who believe are the ones for whom he died, and no one, no one can pluck them out of his hand or from the Father's hand. So we see our sin, we confess it, we repent of it, and we go back to following and trusting Jesus. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints gives us kind of handles for dealing with really bad sin in the lives of each of us. As we're following Jesus, it's always possible.